I'm learning that there is no shortage of misunderstandings when it comes to Christ and his church. And I don't mean just out there. I mean in, in here, I have misunderstandings and shortcomings, and I mean out there, you have them. That's become very apparent to me in the past few weeks, and the Holy Spirit this week just really impressed on me and, and just burdened me with this thought. Wouldn't it be terribly tragic if, if we had misunderstandings and misperceptions and misconceptions about Christ and his church, and we were explaining them thinking we're explaining A, and actually it's B. And so folks hear us explaining A, and they're thinking, oh, I'm in for that, but to find out in the end it's actually B. That, that would be tragically terrible. And I think that may give you a, a small picture of why I'm approaching such a difficult topic in this month, because the last thing I want to ever do is paint a picture and portray a picture of Christ and his church that's not one the Bible portrays. I don't want to be outside those bounds, but neither do I want to not give the full painting of that picture. What it is that makes his body counterculture. What makes us distinct and distinguished and then have you embrace that as this is what the Bible says about Christ's body. So I'm bringing you a set of four messages on the counterculture church, and we're looking at one thing specifically that makes us exactly that. It's how do we deal with unrepentant, blatant sin in our midst? Welcome to First Family, <laughs> right? And if you are new, this is your first time, maybe your second or third time you're checking things out here. You've sensed the Holy Spirit kind of nudging you towards being involved in, in his church, or maybe you're not even sure why, like finding out more about Christ and his church. I will promise you this. I'll lovingly bring you the full picture. It will take more than one week. But we're, we want to bring you the fullest picture about what it means to follow Christ and be part of his church. One of those aspects that I think is very counterculture that many try to run away from is this concept of what we call church discipline. It's laid out for us in 1 Corinthians 5. And so we're taking the full month of September and just understanding more about that aspect of church, Christ's body. Each week we'll take some questions as well. You'll see the number there behind me off and on. So just feel free to text that. We'll take two or three live in the service. Uh, we'll answer those throughout the week as well. But again, my heart is to help us get as full a picture as possible about this body that, that we're part of so that we don't think we're getting A when really God intends for us to get B. Makes sense? Everybody tracking with me? And so we've been tackling the portion of Scripture called 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. It's perhaps the most exhaustive set of verses about church discipline in the Bible. So we tackled last week uh, verses 1 and 2. Let me give you a brief definition of church discipline before we move any further. So you can kind of use this in, as perhaps some framework for where we're headed and where we've been. 
Here's how I and your elders would define church discipline. It's a solid biblical definition. It flows right from this chapter. It's simply a humbly restorative action by which a church removes an unrepentant member from the benefits of the fellowship so that the church displays distinction, pursues purity, and provides protection with the hope of lovingly drawing the sinning person to return in repentance. Just a simple, it's a little wordy, but I think every part of that's important and drawn from this chapter. This is the topic we're covering this month, and we're using 1 Corinthians 5 as our roadmap. Let me show you briefly as well our roadmap for 1 Corinthians 5. As you know, we covered uh, the report and the response last week, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to look this week at just the removal of the sinning, unrepentant member and what's involved in that. How does it happen? And, and, and uh, what's the protocol for that? What's the rubric, so to speak, for taking that action? So that's in store for today. It's mainly verses 3 through 5. So with your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 5, let's dive into this, what I call somewhat gritty text you can expect to have something like sand in your mouth by the time we're done. It's just going to be that um, hard to digest. But again, I promised you this. My heart and my goal is not to try to sell you anything. I'm not here to force you to join this or join that. I want to present the truth of God's word to you. And let us wrestle with it and deal with it and know what is the full picture of belonging to Christ and his church. This is part of it. So beginning in verse 3, here's what the Apostle Paul, inspired by God's Spirit, would say to the church in Corinth and thus to us. He's responding to the sin that was ongoing in that church, the sin of incest. You can see that in verse 1. Paul is quite upset that they're responding with pride, and he says, instead, you should be so sad that you actually remove this person from among you. And beginning in verse 3, he talks about how that removal is to occur. For though absent in the body, he says in verse 3, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How many of you are already feeling the sand in your mouth? <laughs> you can feel the grittiness of this, can't you? The countercultural nature of these three verses, it's, it's shocking. I find three ingredients present in these verses when it comes to removing someone from the membership of the church. For taking the action of church discipline... And dealing with ongoing, blatant, unrepentant sin, I find three ingredients that are essential, three necessary elements. First of all, there's authority. Notice in the text here, keep your nose right in your Bibles, would you? Notice in the text some pointers to the concept of authority. Paul, first of all, says that he's already pronounced judgment, so he must have sent some authority to do this. And he's kind of looking for that church now to kind of come on board what he's already done. Do you see that in the beginning of verse 3? And he does this even though he's not there in person. He says there's something powerful about his, 
his being spiritually present. You notice that it's mentioned twice, in fact, verse three and verse four. He says, I'm not there in body, but I'm there in spirit. Now, why would Paul have to say that? It's a good question. Here's what I think is going on with that. And this is a, an opinion, but I think it's a solid one, all right? I think Paul is, in this case, realizing that there aren't yet elders in place in the church at Corinth. Now, there could have been, but we have no record of it at this point. So he's assuming that he still has pastoral authority in this situation because the elders really aren't in place there. In fact, you don't find the word elder anywhere in the book of 1 Corinthians. In other epistles, you do find it. So it could be that they were still arguing about who they're going to follow. Remember chapter 3 and their uh, competitiveness over certain uh, leaders in the church, Peter and Paul and Apollos. So they may still have been wrangling about their own immature divisiveness and they haven't really... Um, got the elders in place, so to speak, to lead them. So maybe Paul here is saying, you know what? Because you like elders, though I'm not there, I'll retain that role of pastoral authority. And I'll just pronounce this judgment, this verdict, this sentence, and you guys need to get on board this. There is a sense of authority here. There's also a sense of authority that's even higher than that. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he says here that when they're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and again, he says here, his spirit's present, and then in the power of the Lord Jesus. So not only is pastoral authority in view here, I think there's also divine authority in view here because Paul is, is saying that when you gather, this is being done in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whenever something's done in his name that the Bible has commanded us to do, one commentator said this, it's as if Jesus were there doing it. So we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We did that at eight o'clock here at 9.30, Ben, it's as if Jesus were here doing that. That's the Great Commission, Matthew 28. We're to baptize in that fashion. So do you see the two kind of prongs of authority here? Paul is exerting correct scriptural, biblical, pastoral authority. There's also divine authority in place here. That's what really we stand on when it comes to church discipline. This is so important because you don't want some rogue individual member out there saying, Man, I think we should deal with that person and that person and that person. They're not meeting up to my list or my standards. That's not what's happening here. It's God's standards that we're holding each other to, and it's his authority by which that happens. And you say, well, Todd, where is that authority in the Bible? In regards to how this happened here in verses 3 through 5, I just would bring you back to Matthew 18. In fact, you should take Matthew 18 and just kind of overlay it in regards to this chapter, because Matthew 18 gives us the process behind this action, I believe. Matthew 18, in fact, has several phrases that would point to authority as well. Uh, Matthew 18 is where you have the passage that says, if, if you have something against your brother, you go to him one-on-one. -on -one. If he's sinning in a way and he's, there's not repentance, you go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Then if there's no repentance, you go to them two or three-on-one. And if there's still no repentance, you take it to the church then watch this. At the end of that, uh, Jesus says this. He says to Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound. And whatever you loose on earth will be loose. Do you find those phrases to be very authoritative to the church? I do. Jesus said this is how it works. When you take something to the church, there's a sense of authority from his presence and from the authority given to 
the pastors. So our authority does not come from who we are. It doesn't really even come from you. It's derived from the Lord and from the Scriptures. So we would say that this authority in general is a biblical authority to discipline unrepentant sinning members. Now, I hope right now you're already feeling the weight of this counterculture text. (laughs) Because if you look around our country, what do you find mobs of people doing? Resisting authority. But there are three ordained institutions that have authority in the Bible. The first one's the home. Mom and dad are the authority of the home. And every mom and dad said, and every child said, oh my, right? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. It's a structure. It's ordained. It's instituted by God. The same thing's true for government. They're They're designed to protect those who do right and punish those who do evil. And then there's the church. God gives under shepherds or pastors. And the Bible says in Hebrews, these are soul watching kind of men. They they watch over us. And the Bible even says to obey those that have the rule over you, to mimic their lifestyle. So when you you find this in the scriptures, that the church is to be an, an arena, a family where there is an authority, a divine authority and a pastoral authority to deal with unrepentant, blatant sin in its midst, Don't act like the culture and think, I don't like that. Authority is a thread throughout scripture that is healthy and necessary for the survival of any people or civilization. And it's true for the church. So authority is a necessary component of church discipline. Divine authority and pastoral authority. Second word would be the word community. I find this in just the single word assembled in verse four. Do you notice that? So in addition to divine authority and pastoral authority, Paul here is calling now on the church when they are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And again, there's some kind of authority within the congregation. I think it's the authority, watch this, this is a good word, to sanction the decision by the pastors or the elders. In other words, we agree and we will live by this. We join in with this decision. So it's a It's a communal kind of, and I'll use the word even public, at least within the church, decision. It's done within the community when the assembly is gathered. Now, why is this the case? Let's ask another why question. Why is it so important that we do this when the church gathers? I think the reason is because apparently it's not worked prior to the gathering. Let's take Matthew 18 again, lay it over the text. Do you recall the the process? One person's gone and said, hey, something's, man, just not right. And they make these appeals one-on-one, and then a few more go. But however long the process, however long the appeals, at some point, watch this, it's no longer individually confrontational. It's now congregational. And the matter of ongoing, unrepentant, blatant sin threatens the purity of the church. It's a polluting a contaminating situation, and so it must be dealt with. And the way to deal with it at this point, the action that's taken is in the gathering of the assembly under the authority of the Lord. So authority, community, and then action is the third word. Verse 5 lays out the action we're to take in community and under the Lord's authority. Verse 5, it's so deliberate. Look at verse 5 with me. You are to deliver this man to Satan. 
Now, we should all swallow hard there. <laughs> the sand is just filling up your mouth, isn't it? It's, it's, again, this is gritty. Now, the word delivered there means to hand over. It's a very intentional word. It's, it's similar to the word in verse 3 where Paul says he's already pronounced judgment. It's a judicial type of word. It has the sense of a verdict or a sentencing. And when you hear that, don't think, well, that means it must be punitive. The point of the sentencing or the verdict is not punitive. It's actually restorative. We want the person to return. And so we're implementing some, some um, things that we hope will turn them back to God. One of those is this delivering of this sinning person over to Satan, which says to me something. That if you're not delivered over to Satan, but you're still within the fellowship of the church, there must be some type of perhaps what we can call it, maybe unsaid, unseen, but very real protection by being in the church. Would you think this through with me? And the Lord will give us understanding. Think this through with me. That being a part of the body of Christ inherently means there's the benefit of mutual warriors with you fighting sin together. It's God's spirit among us together and in, in leading us and helping us discern right from wrong and protecting us. There's, there's a strong implication that what's happening here is they're handing this man over to an arena that is now void of the church's protection and he's more susceptible. He's more vulnerable to Satan. So vulnerable that it may mean the destruction of his flesh, which I think means the killing of his body. Now, how does that occur in this situation? Here's what I think is happening. There are various views. I won't go into them here. Perhaps I will on the Extra Point Podcast Tuesday. But here's what I think is going on here. This sinning man who was just unrepentant of his incest is being removed from the fellowship in somewhat of a judicial sentencing way. Uh, he's, he's being removed from the benefits of the fellowship. We'll say more about that, what that is as we move through this month. As such, if unless he repents, sin will continue to take its toll on his body and his flesh to the point that it may actually take his life. And this would be the means God would use to protect the church. And watch this. According to the text, even save his spirit and soul. Because this last phrase is quite intriguing, isn't it? We deliver a man like this to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, he, he endures and experiences the consequences of his sin in full. We let sin have its full attack on him, so to speak. But in the end, that may very well be the way that God saves his spirit. Now, what's going on with that? Is anybody else like, wow, this is, this is interesting phrases. Here's how I think this looks horizontally. I think it looks like this, though I don't think this is actually true theologically. So give me some time here. I think horizontally this looks like this, like someone's unrepentant and you've appealed to them for a long time, but they don't listen. They never listen. And so you, you tell the church and then they're no longer a part of the church. They don't participate in communion. They're not really part of a small group. They're just kind of out there on their own. And in the end, the consequence of their sin looks like, man, their life ended too short. In other words, God took them early. He proved that they were his child. He took them home. Now, God doesn't take anyone early. 
All of our days are ordained. Are you with me? Theologically, no one's life is cut short. All of us live the exact amount of days God has written in our book. But to our horizontal perspective, it looks that way in this case. Like, man, they just wouldn't listen. And man, sin took its toll and God took them. Are you, are you tracking? Not if you're with me. I think that's what's happening here. I think sin took its toll and this person experienced death from it, but it was actually probably the sign that God was actually saving them from more destruction and, and protecting the church from more um, division. Now, these are tough verses. There's various ways to see them. I think that's the most solid way with the most evidence from the other parts of the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Because more than likely, this is so gritty and it's so groveling in your mouth that you just can't think about God taking someone's life. I mean, this sounds so extreme, Todd. If we were to take sound bites from this and put it on the internet, they think we are the weird church. They think you're a weird pastor. We are definitely counterculture. Let's don't let anyone hear about this. That's what our, our typical American minds think. But that's not how the New Testament church thought. This is not uncommon language to the New Testament church that God took sin so seriously and expected his church to that if a sinning member refused to repent, he would take their life. That was not uncommon language to the New Testament church. Remember Acts 5 when the church started? It was probably just a few years old at the most. And generosity was rampant. Man, people were giving, sharing. And this couple named Ananias and Sapphira wanted to get in on that. They didn't want to get in on the giving. They wanted to get in on the credit. And so they lied about their giving and came to the church and said, hey, we did the same thing. And in that very moment, when they lied to their pastoral authority, Peter, and lied to divine authority, the Holy Spirit, Acts 5, in that moment, God struck them dead. When the assembly was gathered, they washed it. And the Bible says explicitly, they took their bodies out one by one. Can you imagine being a part of the early church then and watching that? You would know that God takes sin seriously. That the purity of his church is of a great priority to him. A few years later, as Paul wrote to this very church in Corinth, he described the attitude that should be present when folks participate of the Lord's Supper, communion. He said it should be one that is, um, is um, of a worthy attitude. In other words, you partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, meaning you're not divisive when you do it. You're not self-centered. You're not trying to, you know, use it as a leveraging pole. But you see, uh, this is the main reason we're gathered. Anything less than that is taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And then Paul said this. He said, and because this happens, some in the church are weak physically. They're also sick and there are some who have died. <laughs> Don't you just kind of feel the, the startling weight of the early church that, that we've lost in America? Like it was, it was, Paul was saying, guys, people have taken the Lord's Supper in unworthy fashion and then they're dead today. Okay, thank you. Wow. John would write about a sin unto death. First John, his first epistle. He said, there is a sin that's not to death, but he said, don't make a mistake, guys. There is a sin that leads to death. So I find it, and I just looked this week again. I find that in the early church, it wasn't an uncommon thing to think about God 
taking action against unrepentant sin in this church. And when you start thinking that way and realizing this is how the New Testament portrays the body of Christ. This is one of the ways that, 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 he put, that the body of Christ is portrayed. This is one of the things we got to know. That this is not just like a do-what-you-want environment. Come and go as you want. Live in it, let live. You know, just, there's a seriousness about our calling to Christ and his church. And God takes it seriously. And so should we. So seriously that we should take action when there's unrepentant, ongoing, blatant sin in our midst. We don't deal with the sin way out there, right? We're not worried about the world's sin. We'll cover that in the next few weeks. We're talking about sin inside the church that's unrepentant, blatant, ongoing, known, and that it's so sorrowful to us. It saddens us to the degree that we take action. And so what's the action look like? It's action that's rooted in biblical authority, biblical community, and then biblical action. And we just turn that person over, release them to experience the full consequences of their sin, even to the extent that God could take their life early. That's heavy. Am I the only guy that feels the weight of that this morning? I'm sure I'm not. As I was thinking this through this week, it hit me. I think I take other things more seriously than I do my church membership. Like when I read this, like I'm a part of that kind of body, like, wow, I need to take my sin seriously. I need to realize that I have, that God is mighty and present. Like there's some things I think as a, as a, as a nation that we, we just aren't stepping well in. For instance, I think there are many churches, and I hope you hear this well, I can't make you. I think sometimes we take the current pandemic more seriously than we do 1 Corinthians 5. Like, like we're more scared of either the government or the coronavirus than we are of God. And I'm speaking this from all angles. Some folks are so adamant they'll never touch a mask. Who does the government think they are? Their, their, their spirit is almost one of rebellion in a way that's odd. Like, you may have some opinions on that, but can there not be grace for a different opinion on something that does not have a verse? And then you find the other side. You know, they're, they're saying that if you don't wear one, you don't love anybody. And I, I find this odd that in the church where there should be grace for opinions in areas where there's preference, we're drawing lines that, that I don't think God ever drew on issues that he didn't say were, were issues of, of, of uh, like, you know, drawing lines about. I hope I'm maybe skating on some thin ice here, kind of poking at you a little bit. You don't even know what I fully believe about all this because I don't talk about it much because I don't think it's the, the major issue in the church. See, I think it's funny that we hear more conversation about the various opinions about masks and our conversation about the mission of God is, is minimized. I would much rather talk about the mission before us and let everyone have their opinion about the mask. The mission of God is primary. It's the mandate I find it so amazing that there's so much talk about the various aspects of social distancing, and yet how many of us engage in talk about spiritual growth? That should occupy our conversation, our small groups. How are you growing into Christ's likeness? How are you submitting to Christ's authority? Hey, how are you battling sin in your life? 
Now, coronavirus gets our conversation and Christ's lordship seems to be shelved for a while. One of my prayers, one of my burdens in my heart is that our church, the church, Christ's body, not be lulled to sleep or lured away from really what matters most in every single age. You see, every single age and every single generation, every single century is dealt with its hurdles. Like I said before, we're not the first to experience hurdles to completing the mission of God with all kinds of things battling against us. So do what you have to do. Hold your opinion. Be gracious with it. But whatever you do, remember, God takes sin seriously. You're part of a body that has to take action in community under his authority. Don't forget this. Let's be the distinct body of Christ. Under authority, in community, and willing to take action. To help you process maybe how some of this looks for our members, I've asked Pastor Travis to join me again. I want to ask you one question, then we'll take some from you guys. Travis, here's the question I want you to answer, and answer this in relation to those here who are FFC members, okay? Because I know there's some who are guests or some checking things out that are you know, visiting today, but those who have said, hey, we're members, what's the greatest landmine of these three verses, or what's the greatest misinterpretation that we are going to face in light of these three verses and this gritty text that we've been kind of, you know, trying to swallow? Yeah. I'm so glad that small groups have started and are continuing to start. This is one of your small group questions this week. So I'm excited for you to answer it and let me know what the right answer is, but I'll take a shot at it. I think the, how this applies to every church member is the tougher our church is upon sin, the more the world is going to look at us and hate us. The more we deal with, the sin, with sin, the more we're going to be categorized as arrogant, closed-minded, judgmental, people who think we're just better than everybody else. And that's something we're going to have to deal with and, and not cave on. And that's going to be really hard. I think the world is pointing at the church and, and, and telling the church that they need to stop drawing lines, calling sin, sin. They just need to, to soften. And the church is going to have to know what do we do when what the culture says and what the word of God say dif- disagree. And so for us, we're going to have to be willing and okay with calling sin, sin. But let's remember that the purpose of church discipline is not for this sinless group of people to point at a sinful world and be mad at them. No, the purpose of church discipline is to help those who claim to be Christ followers to stay accountable, to stay humble, and to continue to grow. That's the purpose of it. So we're not intolerant of the world, but what we are saying is if you claim to be a Christ follower, your life will look like his. And when it doesn't, you'll repent. So I think what we're learning from our text is if there's a sin that we are intolerant of, it's for somebody who claims to be a Christ follower who won't repent. Because every single one of us is sinful and struggles and fails. And the normal response of a Christ follower is, I'm sorry, I messed up. Will you forgive me? I repent. I want to change. And then for their brothers and sisters in Christ to say, I forgive you. God's still working on you, and he's still working on me. And that's one thing I think 
our church has got to struggle with, each, each member has got to struggle with this. How do we land in that area? So we'll, we'll almost be seen as unloving, even yeah. though we actually are trying to be loving. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Good insight, Travis. Thank you. Will you help me tackle a few questions that came in? We'll see. I'm hoping one came in with like your name specifically, no. you know, instead of my name, right? Don't do that. Let's see if we get some questions texted in. <laughs> Pastoral authority right there. Don't do that, right? <laughs> By the way, for those who don't know, Travis oversees all things discipleship here. And so that's why it's important. He's kind of leaning in here a little bit with us. Here's a question for us. In today's church membership culture, it seems that an unrepentant church member feels totally free to just anonymously move down the road to another church body, and there's no accountability between churches. Can you comment on what FFC's position posture is regarding this? Mm -hmm. uh, I can't do that in about a sentence. If we know about it, that someone's moving on while they are involved in a disciplined situation, we tell the church. That's been our practice, and that's our policy. We can't deal with that if we don't know, though. We're not omniscient or infallible, not anywhere close to that. So we, don't, we can't work with other churches if we don't know about it. But where we do know about it, I think, Travis, you'd agree that we lovingly say, hey, by the way, um, there's more going on here than what you probably know right now. Yeah. Yeah, I've been here six years, and I can say that that has been the case since I've been here. As an outsider who came in, that has been the case. I've been a part of those conversations, and, and I think one thing that Todd does well is he stays in communication and in relationship with the other pastors of Ankeny, uh, and that's a benefit. That's a blessing uh, so that all churches can stay healthy and deal with sin when they need to. And so, yeah, I would absolutely say that is the case here. And I think that that's an official response, so to speak, to the official part of the question. I'm really intrigued by the word anonymously, though, aren't you? Like, does that not describe the American church culture? Just move on down the highway, kind of like, you know, you find a new place, just kind of get involved there. And I'm not saying there aren't places and times that God moves people to different churches. We've had people leave and come. I'm not arguing against that. I'm suggesting that that shouldn't be the norm. We shouldn't have this revolving door as you know, and Travis would agree with this, mm -hmm. we're fans. We're, we we want to encourage long-term membership because you're never more loved than when you're known. And this word anonymous lets me, it just kind of gives a window into what happens with too many people. Just when they start getting known and can actually be loved, they feel uncomfortable and they move. So they can be unknown somewhere else for a little while. But what always happens is this. You do get known eventually. You know, you, everyone's got baggage, right? We're all carrying some suitcases. Yeah, I'd always say this. Just try to pack it neatly is what I say. I'm trying to pack mine. You pack yours. Underwear's not everywhere on the floor, right? <laughs> some folks, they can't get theirs packed because they're always taking it from church to church. And, in, and eventually you see it and you're like, hey. And then the sudden they feel known. Like, oh, I didn't tell you about that. And then they find another new church. And we would say this to you. The energy you spend at a new church trying to get involved and project an image and maybe you'll think you're something, once you take that same amount of energy and just put it into the church where you are, where there may be some difficulties or some hurdles, if you put that same energy into that, you'll be more loved at the end of the day by the folks who know you more deeply than if you try to keep trying to find a place where you can present an image of something you're maybe really not. So it's a kind of a large conversation there, but I just want to encourage you. Can, can we just embrace that 
the word anonymous really shouldn't exist in community. We should be known. And the more known we are, the more loved we are. And if you fight against that, I would say you have a distorted view of community. The best families are those where every, every child knows, mom and dad love me no matter what. And the same is true for a church and God's family. So let's share, let's be open. There are consequences to no repentance. We should always be repentant. Yep. But this does not mean you're not loved. That's a good question. Let's take it one more, can we? In regards to 1 Corinthians 5, what's the proper response for a Christ follower toward a professed believer that is not part of a local congregation that is entrenched in their sin? How should we engage them? You want to take your first shot this week? Putting the pressure on me. I, Todd and I joke about this. I, um, I, f- I say this sometimes. In the Bible, there's no such thing as a Christian who's not in a church community or as a, tr- as a Christian who's just a regular attender. Like, if they're a Christian, they go to church and they're a member of that church. That's just the normal standard practice in the Bible. So that first question shouldn't even be a reality. I know it is, but that shouldn't even be a reality. And so I think maybe the first pressure we should put on folks is, is you're a Christian, right? Which community you belong to? Where's your, who's your pastor? Who are your elders that are, who are overseeing you, that are watching over your soul? And if they don't have one, I think that's a good challenge before other challenges is why aren't you following Christ and his, his example of? Yeah. Like visibly identifying. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. On an official note, we would say that if they're not a member, technically, we won't be able to discipline them according to our bylaws. Now, can I just be very transparent with you? That makes some people not join the church. I, nothing we can do about that. That's your call. But it should open up in your heart something that says, why am I afraid of being known? And why am I afraid of repentance? No one here is without sin. So as it is exposed, we just keep repenting. We deal with each other. We love each other. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would agree with you. Just join the church. Be a visibly identifiable member. And don't be afraid of this. You know, but technically, if someone's not a member, you're right. The church's pastoral leadership, its authority will not take this action. Um, and there's some legal reasons for that, and there's some different reasons, but our bylaws would say that they have to be a member. That's a good question, too. I think what Travis said is helpful. How should we engage them? Probably just personally, based on relationship again. But at some point, that's probably going to end, and you're going to have your hands tied, and you just got to live with that. We've had folks do this. They'll, they know that's coming, and so they'll take their membership out real quick at the last minute, and they can avoid having to move from confrontational to congregational. And so I just don't like to play those kind of games. I just soon, let's all agree that we're members and we're going to live in the light and we're going to walk in the light as, and have fellowship with each other and we're going to just constantly work with each other in community. Yeah. Well, I need to wrap this up. I'll save the other question for online and I'll answer it in some way. Travis, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I really do. Um, can I summarize all this and help mobilize us for obedience? Let's do that. Because I don't want you just to hear this and get smart, perhaps. Or like, oh, I learned something. I want us to be motivated, mobilized for action, for obedience. So here's how I would sum all this up. These three verses about the removal process and what's necessary for it to take place and when it takes place. 
Here's what it says about our church. That a counterculture church loves and lives under authority, in community, and with action so that sin doesn't win in the end. See, that's what we're after. We don't want sin to win in the end when it comes to your life. And so we're going to engage each other progressively, humbly, lovingly, and if necessary, we'll take the action of 1 Corinthians 5, 3 through 5. Not that we want to or are looking forward to that, but we strongly want to wage war against sin. And watch this. When we do it under authority and in community, we're waging war against sin together. And how can we do that? Because Christ has won the war against sin. I come back to what I said last week. We can only confront sin humbly because Christ defeated sin victoriously and finally. So as we engage with each other, even as we were, even as we have to implement these verses, let's do so in the spirit of Christ and with the confidence that he has won the war so we can, we can wage war together while we wait his return. Because saying no to these values and these concepts that really are a picture of the church. This is the picture you need to know. If you're looking at joining a church, being a part of a body, I don't want to try to sell you a product and a bait and switch. I'm not trying to give you half the picture. You need to know everything going in best you can. This is it. And if you don't want that, here's what I think you're saying. I don't want Jesus' body because Jesus purchased the church. He's the great shepherd he bought the church. He's the owner of the church. In other words, we are only in community. We're only under authority if Jesus is in the picture. It's all about Christ. And so to say no to his church, to say no to authority and community and to action is, is in some sense like, well, I don't want really part of Christ. And I would just beg you and pastorally plead with you. Don't say no Christ or his church, even in all of its starkness and grittiness, it is the way that God has ordained that we wage war against sin together. Join me in that battle, would you? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.